before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Joining me this time out is Tarek Brooker, an Australian who, like me, has, among other things, a borderline unhealthy fascination with the lucky country's remarkable property sector. Many of you will know Tarek from Twitter, where his handle is at Avid Commentator, while others will be familiar with his excellent substack, avidcom.substack.com. Now, when we recorded this conversation, Australia had an election looming, and both major parties were at great pains to try and ensure that should they win, the property market wouldn't suffer, an increasingly tricky landing to stick as surging inflation seems to demand higher rates from the country's central bank. Since then, the incumbent Liberal Party have been ousted by Anthony Albanese's Labour Party in an upset vote, and the landscape is now more uncertain than ever. There's so much to talk about where Australia is concerned, so I'm thrilled to have Tarek join me to discuss all the various moving parts. So please enjoy my conversation with Tarek Brooker. Tarek, mate, uh, really good to see you. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, it's evening here, it's morning there. You're, you're a day ahead of me, and some would, by the end of this, probably guess you're years ahead of me, but we'll, we'll, we'll prove that beyond a reasonable doubt in the next hour or so. So thanks for taking the time to do this. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, mate. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. Australia is a, is, a, is a place that I love dearly. It's a market I find fascinating, not just in the kind of equity and bond markets, but also obviously the housing market, something I've written and presented about numerous times. And I wanted to take this opportunity with a general election looming in Australia that could have some fairly meaningful consequences to really give people an understanding of what Australia is, how the market functions, what's important to Australians, how we kind of got there. And kind of take it from there because I just think it's such an interesting place and it's it's underappreciated in, in many, many ways. Yeah, Australia is really just an interesting juxtaposition of different factors. Like, you know, there's the the sort of, shall we say, popular conception of Australia as this place of, you know, lovely white sand beaches as far as the eye can see, you know. You know the, the things the things you sort of see in tourism commercials or on you know mo- movies that are that are set in Australia. You know, there's this idea that we're all this very very laid laid back. You know, very, you know, we all just gather around the Barbie on a Saturday and all <laughs> that sort of thing. And you know, it's it's all it's all a little bit stuck in you know stuck in the nine in the 1980s, a little bit crocodile Dundee in some ways. <laughs> and I think that there are certain people who still see us like that. But I, I think that in the in the modern world, Australians have become a little bit more high strung. We're a, a little bit more, you know, sort of concerned about things than we than we perhaps used to be. And I think that COVID really sort of laid bare some of the weaknesses that Australia does have, both in our in our markets and in our society. But only for a very brief moment before the the, the switch was flipped, and we had we got basically what was one of the largest stimulus packages mm. in the world relative to GDP. And, you know, basically it was, you know, the lucky country is the lucky country again. And, you know, our luck is never going to run out because that is one of the, the sort of defining factors of government policy and even just, you know, popular perception here in Australia. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's what, 25 years and counting, 19, no, 22 years and counting. 1990, 91 was the last recession down there, I think I'm right. Yeah, saying. excluding, so, excluding COVID, it's like 30, over 30 so years. So 30, yeah, 31 years now uh, and counting, which is which is remarkable. Um, but it also means that obviously that there is, 
zero preparedness for any kind of recession, right? And you spoke there about that switch being flipped. And, and there's there's been this tendency in Australia for the government to leap at any sign of there being any weakness in the economy. Uh, but but let's talk about why that is, why, why Australian policymakers are so worried about there being any kind of downturn. Well, they're, they're concerned about it just for, for the reasons that you mentioned, just in the sense that we, ha- we haven't had a recession for so long. We have no experience of it. You know, in terms of people who have been born in Australia or lived in Australia for, for, through that, that period, people haven't experienced it. So if, if and when we do experience a shock without that level of, not if, well, it's obviously a case of when, but when we do experience that, that kind of shock in the, in the future, People will have no conception of what of what that shock is like, how long it will last, what the severity will be, what the knock-on effects will be. So the government really, really wants to avoid that. And then there's also just, you know, there's there's the housing market side of things, because really that is the driver of of policy. And it's also just that the Australian government is unimaginative shall we say like there's a there's an old there's an old saying from a from a book i forget exactly who said it but you know australia is a is a lucky country run by second-rate people who share its luck yeah donald horn donald horn right there i I quoted it yeah yeah exactly right exactly and that is that is really just what the way our government functions like for example if you look at things in say say real household disposable income per capita for example that has basically up until COVID, flatlined for the past six or seven years. Now, that is an extremely uncommon thing, even in places that are not doing too well economically. You know, But basically, what's happened here in Australia is that we've relied on immigration to pump headline GDP growth numbers. Yeah. Like, it, you know, I believe it was Shane Oliver, uh, who Shane Oliver, from, who was an Australian economist from AMP, who did an analysis that basically showed that if you look at things in per capita terms, Australia's actually had plenty of recessions between... 1991 and now, but we don't allow that to happen in headline terms. We just bring in more people, jack up immigration, and that's, you know, very much the modus operandi for the for the political class. But but you know, you, you've touched on housing there, and again, this is something that I've written about and have observed firsthand. You know, when I first came down to Australia to live, I I couldn't believe the strength in the housing market, and that was you know 15 years ago. The prices didn't make any sense whatsoever to me back then. Um, and you know, since then, it's just been a one-way ticket to the moon. And and you know, we saw what happened in America. I was down in Australia during '08, looking around me, thinking, "Geez, you know, this American housing market is struggling." But I mean, this place has to crack. And of course, it started to, as, as every housing market around the world did. And then the, the Howard government came out with their you know first-time home buyers grant and threw all kinds of subsidies at the housing market to try and keep it going. Let's talk a little bit about the background of this and, and how and why housing became such an important component of the Australian economy. Well, considering Australia's status as a migrant nation, housing has always been important. You know, we've always, you know, housing, particularly housing construction, you know, for example, today it employs 12% of Australians directly or indirectly. So, you know, obviously that is a huge, a huge component in Australia's economic growth and economic fortunes more broadly. But basically what, what's, what's happened is as growth has come down over time as the capacity for Australians to take on more household debt has basically peaked. I mean, for, for example, if you look at a graph of Australian household debt, most of it happened prior to 2008, indexed right. to GDP. So 
you know, that was the huge big ramp up. That was the explosive, you know, say, for example, cuts in interest rates. That was the explosive growth in Australian housing prices, which has obviously continued, but that's what underpinned it. But it was also accompanied by economic growth during that time and strong economic growth, you know, uh, you know, real real incomes, et cetera, rose, rose quite strongly. But since then, since 2008, and particularly since the end of the mining boom in 2011, 2012, we've become increasingly reliant on, well, what the what the Reserve Bank would call the wealth effect. You know that has become an increasingly present thing in their in in their various reports, in their various outlooks, and basically, you know, we we want household wealth to grow, and Australians are not big stockholders relative to other nations. We are all about housing. So in order to pump the economy, you pump housing, and how and you know, and that makes people spend. But that that brings us to a, what I would consider in in this day and age a uniquely Australian thing, which is what what we call an Australia equity mate, which which is basically people withdrawing cash from from their homes using their homes as an ATM in order to spend within the real economy or to borrow for a business or for any number of other reasons. Now, the reason why it's called equity mate is back in the late nineteen nineties when when people were generally still being relatively frugal, there was still the legacy of the 1990s recession. There was a campaign by the Commonwealth Bank, which is Australia's largest bank. And it was a a commercial in which there was two neighbours talking to each other. And one of them just bought a new boat. And, And the other one went over and went, how could you possibly afford that? And he goes, equity, mate. And that has been a, that has been a byword for the, the Australian economic growth model since then, because the the number of the number of people and the quantity of equity being withdrawn from Australian homes has just has skyrocketed. For example, like I mean, people look at say like the big short, they look at the number of people pulling home equity out in, in US homes in say 2005 2006 when that really peaked, and that was around about 2.6 percent of US GDP at the time. In Australia, as of the last data that I have available, which is for June of 2021, Australia was 4.6% of GDP. So it is an absolutely huge, huge driver of, of growth, a, a huge driver of just about everything within the economy because it's a services-based economy beyond the mining, beyond the housing. And obviously that cash just churns through and helps power the economy. So it's it's really just a it's it's really just a housing powered economy in that regard. And for those of you in the States, to put it into perspective with the current, well, what some people are calling home equity binge, the US is under 1.2% of GDP. So less than a quarter of what it was according to the yeah. latest Australian statistics. It is remarkable. And this idea that we can't let housing fail, you know, we've seen this remarkable downdraft in interest rates in Australia. You know, and don't forget, mortgage rates were in the 7% not that long ago, right? And we've suddenly they've cratered them all the way down to where they are. And so you've got this average house price to disposable net wealth is, you know, eight, nine times, whereas I think the US got to six, I think, in in 2006, seven. You've seen affordability of housing drop through the floor. And the one thing that it seemed to me to keep this thing going has been the ability of the government to stimulate directly the housing market through interest rates. And, you know, they've, they've thrown, as I said before, they've thrown a few grants here and there. What was the Australian stimulus response to the pandemic like? Because, you know, that had a big housing component to it as well. Oh, absolutely. It was, it was well, the government did what they call home builder, which was basically grants for people to either buy new homes 
or to renovate existing homes as long as they met a certain criteria. I think I believe Home Builder was up to $25,000 from the federal government. But then there's also the duplication of that at a state level to varying degrees because also the states then threw money at the, at the construction sector, which is, as I've mentioned previously, a huge component of the economy. And basically they created, they, they kicked off this enormous construction boom. And there was also a uniquely Australian thing, which was the term funding facility from the Reserve Bank, which committed to providing $200 billion in, well, almost free money to the banks in order to, in order for them to lend. And then there was also the RBA's yield curve control efforts, which, which capped rates first, the three, the Australian three-year bond rate first at 0.25% and then at 0.1%, which massively pushed down the cost of borrowing for the banks and allowed them to write an, all of these cheap fixed loans, you know, two, you know, two, three year fixed loans at under 2%, which was something that Australians had never seen before. And yeah. you really saw the number of people taking on fixed loans rocket. But then I think the clue there is, as you said, right, these two year fixed loans, you know, in, in the US, you can fix your rate for 30 years in many cases, right, if you want to. Australia just doesn't have that option available. You don't have that certainty. And of course, mortgage loans are recourse, full recourse down in Australia, right? So you've had this situation where they've done everything they can to make borrowing affordable. They've made it way too affordable. And, and we've seen in Australia the same thing that we saw in America at the peak of their housing bubble is, is people having eight, nine, ten investment properties, you know, running them like a small business taking advantage of negative gearing and building these huge property portfolios, which are just massively sensitive to interest rates. Actually, I've, I've, I've kind of let the horse out of the barn there, but talk a little bit about how negative gearing works down in Australia and, and what a big component that is of, of this housing bubble. Okay, well, negative gearing, for those of you who are not, who are not familiar with it, is basically you are able to offset your losses of, a, of an investment property. So, you know, for example, the, the mortgages, the mortgage and all the other components of the, of the property, you know, the maintenance, et cetera, costs more than, than what you make in from the property in rent. So you're allowed to offset that against your income from other sources. In most cases, your, your income from working. So, that makes it quite an attractive prospect because, because you get this big tax offset. And there's a real sense of I'm beating the tax man here in Australia. You know, you know, it's just like I'm getting one over on the government because you know they're giving me all this money off my taxes in order for me to hold this investment property that is actually, in terms of cash flow, is consistently losing money. So that interacts with here in Australia with the capital gains tax discount, whereby if you hold an asset for longer than a year, you get a 50% discount on the capital gains tax that you would pay. So you put those two together and it's like, well, you, so you can offset the losses over time. Every year you're getting a discount off your taxes year after year after year. And then when you finally come to sell, you get this big discount off your, off your capital gains tax. So it not only appeals to that, you know, sort of I'm getting one over on the tax man, but it also, it's also quite attractive from a, from a financial perspective, because if you look at, if you look at things over the last 30 years, Negatively geared investment property owners have made huge, huge amounts of money. And I mean, you look at some of these houses in in sort of some of the more, not even affluent places, but just some of the more high end, shall we say, not not wealthy, you know, people on, you know, sort of roughly slightly above median incomes, you know, say areas, part, parts of Northern, Northern Sydney, households make $110,000, $120,000 a year, which is about sort of 20% of median household income and the houses are two and a half, $3 million. Mm -hmm. You know, people bought these houses not that long ago for, you know, 
six, seven hundred thousand. But this, you know, this negative gearing thing. The other big part of that, obviously, is yes, you can have all these loss-making properties, but it doesn't matter because ultimately the the price of the asset is going to keep going up, and so you'll make all your losses back when you sell the property. So, so you've got this extraordinary situation where there are people, as I say, with multiple investment properties, all of which are losing money. And yes, they can write them off against their tax, but the big carrot at the end of this is to be able to sell that house at some point guaranteed for a much higher price than you paid for it. Yes, you pay the capital gains tax, but you know you, you, you front load all the losses, you back end all the gains, and everybody comes out ahead. And of course, that's worked because to your point, this equity mate phenomenon, the equity in all these homes has gone up and people have borrowed against that to buy more houses and build these huge portfolios, you know, all of which tacitly has been encouraged by the government just by the way they've constantly reinforced this idea that the property market can't fail. And now we reach the point where we've got interest rates starting to go up. We've got the RBA governor actually apologizing for the way they've handled the situation, which again, is there's some extraordinary things coming out of central banks in the last couple of weeks between Philip Lowe and Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England. So where are we with the housing market and this kind of blossoming interest rate hike cycle in Australia? It, we are still very much at the early stages. You know, we, for example, Sydney and Melbourne home prices have basically, st- they, they started stagnating towards the end of last year and now they're starting to, to roll over a bit. But that was happening before before the the RBA raised rates, which only occurred which only occurred a few weeks ago, and the other you know sort of smaller capitals, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, they are still seeing continued price growth. But the question now becomes, what path are we going to take in terms of our in terms of our property market? If you look at places, say for example, like New Zealand, where they raised interest rates last October. And now we're seeing large falls in in Kiwi property prices in places like, say, Auckland, for example, mm-hmm. prices are down more than 10% compared with their peaks. So that's really, really the big question now, because obviously the New Zealand government approach to housing is a little bit different. They've they've uh, they've removed their negative gearing for new properties and they've yep. and they've introduced the capital gains tax, which is the complete polar opposite of here in Australia, where negative gearing is kryptonite. You know, political kryptonite, for for example, like the Labor Party here in Australia, which is our, our left-wing party, which, you know, you'd think in theory would be, you know, not for tax breaks for property investors, recently affirmed that negative gearing is a good thing. So we we really have this, you know, this this difference between us and other other nations. So it's a bit it's a bit challenging to determine exactly where things are going because it's also the fact that Australians are still relatively confident in the, in, the, in property prices. Confidence in more broadly, so for example, according to ANZ's Consumer Confidence Index, is on its knees. But when it comes to property, it's another story. Well, you know, I, re- I remember very well right before the, the American housing market cracked, there was a survey done, and uh, I forget the exact numbers, but I, it was something like you know, 75% of people thought property prices were going to go down in the next year, and 95% of people thought their house price wouldn't. And it's that mindset that, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah there's a property order, but not my, you know, my house is fairly valued. It's the other people's property that's not. You know, and you, you, you touched on there, Tarek, you touched on the, the political side of this. And I think that's it's another point worth talking about so people can understand just how important this is with a, with a general election, what, a week away now? That's um, tomorrow, actually. Oh, it's tomorrow, yeah. Uh, God, yeah, it's 20th. Yeah, you're right. So um, 
Uh, so we got this election tomorrow. Um, so to talk a little bit about Scott Morrison, the incumbent, Anthony Albanese, the challenger, and the, the kind of two views on property with regards to the election campaign. Because Albanese's come up with some absolute rippers. Yeah, well, it's it, it's an interesting one. For, for say, Scott Scott Morrison is known by some in the by some in the property sector as the property prime minister because he used to he used to work for the Property Council of Australia. So, and they are they are basically known as a well, known for their lobbying efforts, shall we say? Yeah, we we'll call them cheerleaders. Yeah, be polite. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> We try to be diplomatic, and Scott Morrison is basically, you know, very much in favour of, of of higher of higher housing prices, and that that's really reflected in. Well, I mean, he, he basically said it said as much at the last election in, back in twenty nineteen, because at that point, Labor wanted to reform the capital gains tax discount and the neg- and negative gearing policies I mentioned earlier. They wanted to change that to to, to make it to make it a bit different and make it hopefully make it a bit fairer from their perspective. But that arguably contributed to their defeat. But back to the present, Morrison is is basically just seen as a guardian for the, the prop, for the property sector for a continuation of the, of the status quo, and you know we've we've really seen that with his with his recent policy where you're allowed to withdraw up to fifty thousand dollars from your superannuation, which is for Americans like your four hundred one k or a personal a personal retirement savings account for for those of you elsewhere, and. Basically, you can take that money. You can take up to forty percent of your super, and which is up to fifty, which is the up to a cap of fifty thousand dollars, and then you can use that for a deposit to buy a home. So they come up with that as a, an eleventh hour thing because they're in trouble at the, in the polls, and that was their policy to help improve their political fortunes and and hopefully for them prop up the prop up the housing market because obviously with rates rising, it's it's looking a bit shaky at the moment, and there are some quite influential and I would I would say intelligent commentators calling for some rather significant falls in property prices. And then on the other side of the coin, we've got Anthony Albanese who has walked back the various policies I mentioned from 2019, which you know, you, which were part of their reform package and he's now backed the property sector as well. And he has his own scheme to help prop up housing prices, which is a shared equity scheme whereby you buy a home and the government takes up to a 40% stake in the home, up to a certain cap. And then you either pay off the government or down the road, you refinance and then you pay off the government or you sell the property and then you pay back the government. So whichever way you look, both sides are making moves to prop up the market. So, you know, there really isn't a whole lot of daylight between them on, on this particular issue. Now this, you know, this, this. I was amazed when I read uh, Albo's scheme. This, this, this. You know, the government loan forty percent of your home. You know, and what's interesting is the reaction to that because people seem to get what that was. You know, they, they talked about you know, as soon as you do that, you're artificially propping up the market and you're making homes more unaffordable for more people. And yes, ten thousand people get lucky and have the government chip in on the price of their house, but you ruin it for everybody else, which is clearly true but this this notion of housing unaffordability in australia is very real you know it, it's reached the point now where it's almost impossible to get a foot on the property ladder at these prices and yet if they let the prices come down given the amount of leverage in that system you know it, it, it could enter a spiral very very quickly exactly and and that and that's also the other factor in terms of the the home equity withdrawals because if if prices start declining and just declining precipitously, you're going to see the home equity withdrawals stop, 
will not stop, but reduce significantly. And even if you see, like, say, for example, uh, I, I like the example of the US. Between 2006 and when Lehman collapsed, the amount of the proportion of home equity withdrawals dropped by about 66%. So if that were to happen to Australia, that would be pulling out 2.7, 2.8% of GDP over the period of about yeah. two years. So it's pretty hard not to have a recession solely based on that, let alone the confidence impacts as well. So yeah, if prices fall and if prices fall to the point where the government can't prop them up, you're in for a very, very bad time. And um, unfortunately, that's for Australians, that's the real unavoidable hangover, you know, after, you know, 31 years of, you know, let the good times roll. Well, you know, anecdotally, I'm, I'm seeing stuff on, on Twitter and in some of the newspapers in Australia, you're starting to see property prices get reduced, which is a new phenomenon in Australia. We're not used to seeing that. You're starting to see auctions with two or three people show up and, and the homes get passed in, um, which for those of you unaware, most of property in Australia sold at auction. Passed in just means it either didn't meet the lowest bid set by the, the vendor or they they had a bid that they didn't want to negotiate with, and so they've decided no, we'll we'll put it up back up for sale again uh, in a couple of weeks' time. You know, I read figures today from Domain, which is the, one of the big Aussie um, property sites, saying that there were thirty, I think it was thirty-eight thousand homes for sale in New South Wales, and there were less than four thousand under offer. And so, you know, numbers like this suggest that for the first time there may be a real topping out of this housing market and a real rolling over to your point earlier on and, and you know I, I struggle to think that property prices go down 10 percent in australia it, it just doesn't seem they either go up or they go down 20 percent, 25 percent is that way off beam am i, am I just uh, you know I've, I've been waiting for this to happen for so long i maybe just i'm just getting giddy with the whole prospect <laughs> of some sanity returning I think that you're, that, you're, that you're correct on a long-term time horizon because we have seen some prices fall before. You know, between 2017 and 2019, we had the Banking and Finance Royal Commission, which really put the fear of God into the banks. And that sort of curtailed lending a bit. We also saw a tightening of credit from APRA, which is our banking regulator. And so it's not unheard of for prices to fall up to between 10 and 15% in certain cities under those conditions. So to that degree, it has those kinds of falls have occurred before, but it was really a, a temporary thing. Because it occurred over a period of a couple of years, it didn't really undermine confidence to the degree that you would expect. It was just like, oh, well, this is a temporary blip. Yep. You know, it's all happened before. Prices are still going to go to the moon. And that thesis has been proven correct yet again. So I think that the, the, the key thing for Australians is that if you break that confidence, if you break the confidence in the people, in the investors, that housing will always go up and go up forevermore, then you risk the type of, you know, big, big falls that you've seen elsewhere. Because if you look at Australian property, say, for example, residential housing stock as a percentage of GDP, it's about 482% of GDP at last count. Now, to put that into perspective, in the US, it's 168% of GDP. I did a little bit of math yesterday. And basically, if you put all of US stocks together, double them, and then add in all US residential housing, it's only slightly more indexed to GDP than all of Australian housing on its own. Remarkable. I mean, just, so, just, just, just remarkable. Yeah, it really is something. And 
you know, there's this idea that, you know, young Australians are in, entitled and, you know, there's, <laughs> I'm not sure if, if, if it's made it around the world, but the idea that, you know, the main reason young Australians can't afford homes is because we spend too much money on smashed avocado on toast. You know, that's, that's the reason. But um, the truth is that, like, I, I've been doing a little bit of an investigation for some articles I've got coming out. And if you look at a place like Orange, which is in regional New South Wales, about three and a half hours from Sydney. So a similar distance between, say, Paris and Brussels, for those of you in Europe, and, say, Washington, D.C. and New York in the U.S. So it's that, but in the sticks, you know, out well yeah. and truly into, into regional sticks, country yeah. Australia. A house there is unaffordable on the rates that we are potentially going to see for the median household. So the median household in Australia cannot afford a property in that part of the sticks. Yeah. And it's not like Orange is like Byron Bay or Cape Shank or, or Lawn or one of these really attractive places in, in, in the regions. It's just, it's an old farm town. And shockingly, they have oranges there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a great point, and it's very difficult to describe somewhere like Orange to people who aren't familiar with Australia, because it's it's you know when you think about a country town, I, I guess the closest I could come would be to, to describe it as some of these towns that people talk about in kind of the far out Texas. These they have one stoplight in the town. You know, it's it's that kind of small town in the bush in the middle of nowhere that you would not expect property prices to be unaffordable. There shouldn't be. A stampede to buy property in somewhere like Orange, because as people grow up in Orange, a lot of them would move into Sydney. They'd move out of Orange to get work and go and start families and build lives. So, you know, it, it is amazing. And, and look, you brought up the Royal Commission there, and I'm glad you did that because, um, again, this is something that was a huge banana skin for the property market back in 2019. This was actually when I, I put a presentation together around this. Royal Commission investigating lending standards, investigating literally all the things that took the American housing market down in 2007 were happening in Australia through a magnifying glass because there's only really four banks that were involved. And, you know, the findings of the commission were damning. I mean, they really were damning and they ought to have created a major headache for the housing market. But once the findings came out, you know, it, it became very clear quite quickly, I think, that we can't put in place the recommendations of this commission because if we do that's it game over the banks won't be able to lend anymore the housing market will collapse and so you know you, you've had all this all the malfeasance you've had it all exposed you've had it chronicled and played out on lifetime tv on the you know the Aussie equivalent of c-span i guess and yet still this thing is is like you know, like the Leatherface and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre things, you just can't kill this damn thing. It keeps coming back and everybody seems to be invested in making sure that no matter what, we make sure the Aussie housing market stays strong. What, what you mentioned, you know, the, the fact that all that just fell by the wayside that, I mean, there's a, there's a lovely photo, you know, that you, you, may, you may or may not have seen it and it's of the, the release of the Ranking Royal Commission's findings and it's Kenneth Hayne, who was a former High Court judge who helped chair the report and, and the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and Kenneth Hayne refused to post the photo for the, the handshake and the smiles because he knew what Josh Frydenberg had done, that he'd watered down the, the, the report, that it basically would end up as a nothing and a complete waste of everyone's time. So I think that that only further reinforced the idea that the government is going is to look after you if you're a property owner. It's going to look after the market. And the thing with Australia is that we sort of flip between narratives over time, depending on, on what's going on in the market and what's going on in the economy. 
Because on one hand, you've got, say, for example, during the good times, it's, oh, there are people coming here from all over the world. We've got one of the highest immigration rates relative to our population on the face of the planet. You know, we're not making any more land. There's all the usual platitudes that I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, particularly Canadians, because they're very much yeah, the same. Yeah. But then when, when things start to get bad, you know, when the economy starts to, to, to suffer a bit, all of a sudden it's, oh, no, 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 we don't need to worry about those things because the government has our back. The government will protect us. The government will step in. And I suppose the really key thing in this is that so far they've been right. Every time things have gotten bad, the government stepped in. And even, you know, the the election policies that we mentioned earlier, you know, property prices under threat. Well, let's let's throw some either let's throw taxpayer money at it and risk it and, and risk it on the throw of the dice and shared equity, or let's just throw the dice on on your your retirement savings instead. Well, let's let's talk about the banks because again, this is another peculiar Australian phenomenon. You know, you've got four banks essentially in Australia. That that you you want you want the epitome of too big to fail is the four Australian big banks, but the way that they are funded is another huge Achilles heel for Australia in general. You know, with the amount of wholesale offshore funding that the, the, the banks are absolutely reliant on. So in a world where interest rates are going up, just talk a little bit about the Australian banking sector and kind of the threat that they face in a world of, of rapidly rising rates. The offshore funding that you mentioned is, is one of the things that really scared the crap out of the, out of the RBA and out of the government when, when things really took a, took a tumble back in February and March 2020. You saw, naturally, everyone saw rates spike as the panic occurred, as, as that yield spike occurred. But if you... I'll see if I can find the chart and I'll, and, I'll get, and I'll get you to include it in the transcript that basically offshore rates for Aussie banks, they really, really took off. And I think that really rattled quite a few people. And I think that directly contributed to the term funding facility, which I mentioned earlier, which is the $200 billion that the RBA committed to giving to the banks. Now that helped alleviate a lot of those funding pressures, at least in the, in the short term. And that was over a three-year period. So that won't be expiring until sort of the start of next year. And that really helped underpin the banks and allowed them to do all this additional lending at these ultra, ultra low rates, which really just, you know, caused this enormous, you know, surge in the number of people looking to get into the market. And that, as you say, with the offshore funding, with all those other issues, that's the real challenge for the banks going forward because they got all this money, they got all, you know, in the end, $188 billion, which is an enormous amount of money. It's about almost 10% of Australian GDP. And they need to refinance that starting probably, I imagine that some of them will want to do it preemptively starting towards the end of the year. And there'll be obviously a large surge next year and the middle of next year. And they need to find $188 billion in funding, which is a whole heap of money for a banking system the size of Australia's. Well, and, and you know, obviously, the Aussie banks don't have any means by which to cushion any interest rate rises. You know, you, you see this whenever the, the RBA moves. You know, it's normally Westpac, the first bank out. As, no sooner as the Chancellor, uh, the Treasurer, put the phone down, than Westpac are raising their rates the full amount, you know, the full twenty-five basis points. You know, as rates go up, the four big banks are putting their rates up. So if, if the RBA raises by 1%, you know full well that, that all of that is getting passed on to the consumer. You know, there, there, there's just no leeway there, right? No, no, there isn't. And that's a, that's a good point that Alex Joyner, an Aussie economist from IFM Economics, came out with said recently that basically 
it's not only that they're going to pass on the rate rises from the RBA as they're forced to look to these other funding sources, as they're forced to refinance the, the term funding facility, it's entirely possible. And not only that, as they look to protect their, their, their compressed net interest margins as well, that they're going to be raising rates by more than what the RBA is. So, you know, that's a, that's another factor in, in this as, in this as well. So, you know, it's, it's not just this, the sticker market rate that you have to worry about. It's, it's the banks also maintaining their net, net interest margins too. Well, let's shift focus from the housing market because it's Australia may be 90% property, but there's another 10% to talk about. Uh, and obviously, in, in recent years, the big kind of linkage with the Australian economy that everyone understands is China. So talk a little bit about that relationship between Australia and China and, and I think importantly how it's changed, particularly over the last sort of three or four years. Well, to sort of you know, give a little bit of background, Australia is you know, China's quarry. Our largest exports are iron ore, coking coal, thermal coal, and LNG. Now, when it comes to iron ore, China is by far our biggest customer. They are just an absolute... Australia has a near symbiotic relationship with China when it comes to iron ore because they consume more iron ore than the rest of the world combined. So, you know, they are really a, a monopoly customer for us in that regard. You know, if China struggles, Australia struggles. You know, it's it really is 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 that simple from the mining side of things. But in the last couple of years, things have obviously soured between Australia and China. You know, we've seen, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a couple of Chinese warships rock up in Sydney Harbour, and it was just it was all sort of you know a bit, oh well, they're here. You know, they they turned up, they filled up their vans with with Aussie baby formula and all the other all the other stuff they love from Australia, and they put it back in their ship and they went back to China, but. That's that's really changed. You know, Australia has been quite ag- aggressive in its recent dealings with China. It's we've we've obviously had you know, for example, Australia was one of the first nations to call for an investigation into the origins of COVID, and that really really pissed the Chinese off. But then we've also had other developments on, from a geopolitical perspective, with for example, the development of the Quad, which is you know, India, the US, Japan, and Australia, and there's also been. AUKUS, as depending on how you want to pronounce that, which is Australia, the UK, and the US, which is you know very much focused on military cooperation, sharing of tech, military technologies, etc. So that's really soured the relationship even further. And China has very much targeted Australian exports as a result of that. So, so for example, you know wine, barley, you name it, across the board, it has targeted you know any number of Australian agricultural and also just finished good exports. So, you know, we've really been hammered in that regard. But the problem for the Chinese is that they, in fact, they also, they also even t- tried to target th- Australian thermal coal exports, which ironically blew up in their faces because it only just ended up driving prices higher. Now, you know, prices of coal ex Newcastle are 420 bucks a tonne, which is just absolutely on the moon. About, I think someone, I think a, an analyst from Reuters said it's about eight times where it was a couple of years ago. So, you know, we are we are heavily, heavily reliant on China, despite their attempts to, to sabotage us, because high commodity prices have cushioned that particular blow. Yeah, you know, once again, this this lucky country idea, um, as a lot of this stuff's happening to see commodity prices going up, is is again just another cushion for Australia. But but what does all this mean for the Aussie dollar? Because it's it's such an interesting currency the way it trades. You know, it it, it spends years range bound. Pops out to an obscenely strong level, 
then it looks like it's going to absolutely fall out of bed and go to places we haven't seen for 20, 30 years. Then it finds some stability when you least expect it. Talk a little bit about the way the Aussie dollar trades, where it is now, and, and what the prospects are for it. The Aussie dollar went up, you know, sort of around about 70, 75, 76 US cents, and we're now around about it's between 68 and 70. It's been sort of bouncing around there recently. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the, the Aussie dollar is also a, a, risk, a risk asset proxy. So, you know, as we see US markets and broader markets sell off, obviously the, the Australian dollar can and sometimes does get hit. But the thing really holding up the dollar at the moment is commodity prices. You know, I, d- despite the fact that China's in lockdown, there is this belief that we will see this big construction-driven Chinese stimulus, that we will see a repeat of the past. So that is holding up iron ore prices. It's holding up coking coal prices. And now this, this even comes as a, at a backdrop of falling profitability and uh, for Chinese steel mills. You know, they're actually, you know, some of them are losing money on, you know, things like rebar and hot rolled steel, et cetera. But that doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the, the commodity prices are still high. As I was saying, thermal coal prices are literally on the moon, highest they've ever been. So that's really, really supporting the dollar against a backdrop of, of this global risk off that we're currently seeing in, in, in broader markets. But then the, the question becomes, what happens with China? Will this stimulus happen? Will they remain in lockdown? I mean, for example, they, they cancelled their hosting of the Asian Cup football tournament, which is in June and July next year. So that's still over a year away. And they cancelled it due, their reason was due to COVID-19. So the real question is that it, for Australia is, does China re- reopen soon? Because if not, the Chinese government may have its hands full supporting households and businesses through this extremely tough time rather than, than doing the normal thing and spending trillions of yuan on, on, on construction-driven stimulus. How is inflation playing out down in Australia? Because look, it's always been an expensive place to buy coffee and to, and to live your life. But obviously, we saw this failed experiment of the RBA in yield curve control. You know, we saw what happened when they took their foot off the, off the two-year bond and saw what happened to the yield in that thing. We've seen the apologies from the RBA. How big a problem is inflation in Australia and how serious are they about tackling it? You know, the Fed is, is ex, has become extremely hawkish. People still doubt their credibility as inflation fighters but they're doing everything they can to convince people they're serious about it because it is a real material danger to, to the US economy. What's the situation down in Australia? Well, inflation recently hit 5.1% here in Australia, which is the highest it's been in decades. And there's also the fact that wages are only growing at about 2.4%. So we are falling behind quite rapidly here. And that's obviously a major concern politically and uh, which could also, which could potentially, if we do see a new government, potentially drive pressure on the RBA eventually, as we've seen with the Biden administration and the Fed. But just in terms of inflation and all that more broadly, I, there's some rather serious questions as to the RBA's commitment. You know, we, we for example, the, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia said recently that basically they think that the peak for Australian rates is going to be around, around about 1.6%. Now, to put that into perspective, Recently, the market was pricing at a peak rate of of 3.5%. But the Commonwealth Bank's logic is basically that Australians are so indebted and that we have and and that we that it's going to have such an outsized impact on the broader economy and on confidence that the RBA won't be able to raise much past that without 
sort of causing some serious problems. And in particular, they mentioned housing prices. And that's something echoed by uh, Christopher Joy from uh, Coolabar Capital, who's been quite quite good on calling yeah. rates and calling the, the housing market. And, you know, he reckons that we get to about 1.5% and that's going to be all she wrote. But the question is, is will that be enough to stop inflation in its tracks or will the RBA be forced into another humiliating back down in order to save the property market from falling off a cliff? And the answer there is, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think anyone really knows on, in, in that regard because, you know, they have been cheerleaders for the market for so long. Well, this, I mean, this is the interesting thing because, you know, in, in America, in in Europe, in the UK, in Canada, well, actually Canada's different, but, but in these other major economies, fighting inflation is not going to affect the housing market as much you know it's 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 going to affect stock markets um it's going to affect bond markets but there's enough of a cushion in those those kinds of risk assets that realistically speaking if you're going to be pragmatic about it then it's a fair trade-off if you're a central bank to give up 30 percent of your equity market which has you know doubled and doubled again since the last time you had any problems in it in order to fight inflation which is such an insidious problem but Australia just doesn't have that luxury, you know, because any move like this is instantly going to translate primarily and and most forcefully straight into property, which is its Achilles heel. Yeah, exactly. And that that is that is why the RBA avoided raising rates for so long. It's why, you know, they were so reticent to move on this. And I mean, I, I think that even even now there isn't really faith from a lot of people that they are going to hold the course. I mean, because there's still that idea that, no, 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 they, they can't do this. It, it, it would blow up the property market and they won't let that happen. So it, it's it's really just an, you know, an, an interesting, what is basically a trap for them, you know? And I, I think I think that one of, one of the really fascinating things is that I think that rates may have to go higher than what the general consensus believes because unless it undermines confidence really, really significantly badly enough, then rates will have to go higher because the problem here in Australia is that a lot of mortgages were written years and years ago and people have never really bothered to refinance or to change the rate that they were paying. For example, the other day, ANZ released data that about 42% of households, if the rates rise by 2%, won't see any material impact on repayments. And then there's also the fact that at the moment, there was, as I mentioned, there was that big surge in fixed mortgage lending only 27% of those loans on, say, for example, national, the National Australia Bank's book are going to expire before March next year. So I think that in the short term, the big issues are going to be confidence and how that plays out because there isn't going to be enough cash sucked out of the economy from the direct impact of rate rises, particularly not when you're going to have you know, governments you know, spending big you know, for example, you, you had the Labor Party come out recently say they were going to spend an additional $7.4 billion. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a solid chunk of whatever impact, you know, a moderate rise in interest rates would have. So I think that the confidence thing is really going to be key because that is going to be what, what, how the economy lives and dies in, in the next, you know, say 12 months. Because if it doesn't die, if, for example, we take what's going on in the States at the moment, you see the rise in consumer credit, people, instead of just tightening the belts, they just decide to borrow instead, and that holds things up. That could really force the RBA to be more hawkish with rates than is generally expected. The other fascinating thing about Australia is if you step back and take a look at the property market and think to yourself, okay, right, I think this thing's going to crack. There's really nothing you can do about it in terms of representing that as any kind of trade. You know, you, you don't have... 
a slew of publicly traded home building stocks, for example. You know, you can short Bunnings Warehouse if you want, I guess. But, um, <laughs> dangerous, dangerous. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> but, but realistically, it all comes down to the banks. You know, the only way to really, really play the property market in Australia would be to short the banks. But then, you know, they're, they're the hardest things in the world to short. I mean, you've had one chance, really, to short those banks in the last 20 years, and that was right before the GFC. You know, they took a beating, as everything did in that time. But betting against the banks, knowing how systemically important they are, you know, it, it's always been fascinating to me that, that there's no way to really represent a short view of the Australian property market, unless I've missed something, and I'm, I'm, I'd be delighted to be put right. Well, the, the main avenue that I that I've seen people take in order to in order to short, for example, back in in twenty twenty, was mortgage insurers. Yeah. Was for example, say like you know you know Genworth, you know if they they were you know they were and are you know heavily exposed to to large falls in in property prices if if people do go if people do go bust, and you know there is that particular avenue, but. The problem here in Australia is that I talk to economists about this, you know, sort of off the record and down low, and the idea is basically that the RBA is going to, if things go badly enough, that the RBA is going to take on all of these toxic mortgages. You know, they're going to basically just hold them until either in time things come good and people can pay them or basically just over time inflation and, you know, rising housing price growth eventually just takes care of them and they can repo and not really take significant losses. So, you know, there's this, 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 uh, this idea that the banks are going to be protected anyway. So that, right. as you say, that makes that short really dangerous because all of a sudden you could go from shorting this really, you know, crap bank that has, you know, all these toxic loans and then all of a sudden that flips and then you've got the the bank doesn't have the toxic loans anymore, and it, and it, in in terms of net interest margins and profitability, it's one of the most profitable in the world. Right. So then it could be you know really making. But, but, but this but this is why it, it, to me again it comes back to the currency. You know, if the, if the Australian government becomes a crappy hedge fund filled to the brim with toxic mortgages, you know, you've got to think at some point that the Aussie dollar is going to suffer on the back of that. But then, hey, maybe commodity prices keep going up and they rescue it. You know, it, it it's been a fascinating country to watch. You know, as as an experiment and and as someone that kind of looks at all the different ways this could go, Australia just always seems to have one card up its sleeve that you know, if if things go bad, well, okay, we'll play that one. And you know, I I don't know if a lucky country's time runs out or not. You've got to think it does at some point. And I've been wrong in calling for it sooner. Things have started to crack a couple of times. And then, as we've said, the government step in. But, you know, j just in wrapping up, when you look ahead at the next year, just kind of give us a sense for those of us overseas what we should be looking at in terms of trying to understand if Australia is going to either crack or make it through. Where, where should we be looking and paying attention to? Beijing, in short. You know, you right. just—it's—it's—it's it's about because I mean, it, as you say, it's about the currency. You know, like the RBA may not want to raise rates beyond, you know, say for example, the numbers put forward by the CBA, which is like one and a half percent. But if the if the currency cracks, if the currency is at risk, for example, because of ch continued Chinese lockdowns or because commodity prices have finally come down from the moon, so those are the those are the, the big two. It's to be looking at China and looking at commodity prices, ironically. And there's also as well just 
consumer spending here in Australia. If that if that continues to hold up, even against the backdrop of rising rates, as it has somewhat in the US as a result of expanding credit, I think that, that, that those are going to be the, the, the three things that really, really define it because, because you need the consumer economy running in decent order. We need commodity prices to be sufficiently high enough to offset the other weaknesses that are occurring in the economy more globally. And then you also just need the commitment from China that that is going to continue for the foreseeable future because... You know, we are, after all, China's quarry. China's quarry. Yeah, it's a perfect description. Well, look, Tarek, this has been enormously good fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. As I say, I find Australia fascinating. I, I'm equal parts enchanted and baffled by it. But this has been a, a really helpful conversation. So, so before we close, just let everybody listening uh, that wants to follow you and, and keep up their understanding of Australia, how they can do that. Okay. Well, you can find me at Avid Commentator on Twitter and avidcom.substack.com for my for my sub stack, so I'll give, give a little shout out to myself there. And that one's completely free. I'm talking about housing and all that sort of stuff in Australia. So, you know, come join the fun. No, it's, it's great stuff. It's, it's been a great resource for me. And, and I really appreciate all that you do for that stuff. And uh, I, would, I would heartily recommend anybody listening to this that wants to stay on top of the Aussie housing market, whether it's for financial reasons or just out of pure fascination, I promise you, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Tarek, mate, thanks for doing this so early in the morning your time and uh, good luck with the election tomorrow, whichever way it goes. I think I think we know what the policies are going to be, no matter who wins. Yeah, I hear that, mate. Not not much change regardless in, the, in on that side of things. Right, well, they say don't vote, the government always wins. All right, mate, <laughs> take care of yourself and thanks again for doing this. No worries, mate. Pleasure to be here. Well, hopefully that's given you a better understanding of how Australia works, uh, the importance of housing to just about every part of its economy and the potential jeopardy that rising rates pose to the whole thing. Again, you'll find Tarek on Twitter at Avid Commentator and his Substack once again is avidcom.substack.com. I can't recommend both highly enough if you're at all interested in how things play out down under. So give him a follow and watch the madness unfold. That's all from me for another episode. I'll be back soon with another great guest. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.